0: Again, good morning brothers and sisters and friends. I hope that you all are doing well and I am truly grateful to be able to preach this morning. Um, it was quite unexpected that I would have to take the last two weeks off on the account of not being able to, to see straight and as you can see I'm still not, I'm still not better, I'm, I'm good Um, but I'm truly thankful that I'm able to be here. This six to eight weeks, if that's how long it lasts or if it goes longer, will prove to be a long time in recovery. Um, I'm totally inadequate uh, in, in being able to express to you my thankfulness and appreciation to my two brothers and our, and our other elders who over the past two weeks have bore a lot of the burden in my absence. Um, I, I can't express to you, church, enough that they deserve double honor by each and every one of us for leading us, And laboring in the preaching of the word of God and neither of them, neither of them asked twice when asked to preach. Or second guessed, it was only yes. And so what a great joy it is to know that the Lord has given in a plurality of faithful men to shepherd this church. And we are blessed. As we learned on Thursday night, to be blessed means to be favored, and God has shown his favor to us in that. I hope that you'll never take for granted the blessing that the Lord has given to this church in so many ways. I also want to thank you all who have been praying for me and praying for my family and have been so encouraging over these last couple weeks, Um, and so enough of all that sappy stuff, but I wanted to make sure I got that out there, because it truly is from from my heart that I say that to, to you all. So we get started this morning, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we will begin reading there in just a moment. The last time that we were in Exodus, we read 1 through 17, but we really only focused in on verses 1 and Two, and today we'll begin a 10-week journey through the Ten Commandments. And of course, we'll start at the beginning in verse 3 today. However, before we do that, I want us to see really quickly importantly, the importantly, a theological baseline of the Ten Commandments. So as a reminder of this theological baseline of the Ten Commandments. Or a better name for the Ten Commandments would be the, would be the Ten Words, or also known as the Decalogue, Dec-ten-log-words, ten, ten Words. And first, is we want to see, is that this is a covenant of grace. And that is, the order of salvation is important and necessary in understanding the Ten Words and the law that is about to come. Verse 1 and 2, And God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Again, first and foremost, God saved his people. He saved his people before he gave them the law. God has extended and given his grace to save them before he gives them the law and this new covenant. Secondly, this law points us To the will of God. The law showed Israel what it means or what it meant to be the people of God. They were to be obedient to Him because ultimately the law of God, this covenant that God is having with His people, reflects His will to them. And His will, the will of God, is the outpouring of His very nature, His very nature of holiness and righteousness and his goodness. And as his people, as Israel, as his people, they were to reflect his will to the world. So keep my commandments. Yes, we are under the new covenant, the law of Christ, as we unpacked last time we were together and what that means. But the ten words still show us the law of God, the will of God, excuse me. In fact, Jesus uses these commandments to show us the the depth of the will of God for our lives. Right? So so in our lives, Jesus commands and tells us that we're we're not just to we're not just to strive to not be murderers or a liar or an adulterer, or even compare ourselves to others in those ways, or us being lesser in those ways waves, but as Jesus says, we are not even to harbor hatred in one's heart, for that is murdering someone in our hearts, or to look lustfully upon another, for that is adultery. But we are to also love the truth in all things. The law doesn't go away because it still serves as a barrier for us to walk in holiness according to the will of God. So we don't tear the Old Testament out of our Bibles. We're not just wasting our time talking about Exodus, nor can we just skip over Romans 14 or 15, 4. The law is is there for the church at this time and redemptive history still for us to look at through the lens of the new covenant because it teaches us the will of God. It teaches us how to be obedient and follow God solid principles of godly living. It's Christ we know who is our salvation. It's Christ who we identify ourselves in. It's not the law. We don't identify ourselves as law keepers. But its its job as the law is to show us God's will and how we are to be obedient to him. And lastly, this law points us to our need of a savior right? Just as God saved his people, showed them, I have to rescue you first. And he does. And as we talked about last week, how Romans 3 tells us that that no one will be declared righteous by what? By the works of the law. It's not made to be our Savior. The law is not made to be your Savior. But it does say that the prophets and the law points us to another righteousness that is found, where? Through faith in the Son of God. And through the life of Jesus, he has proved to us that he is the only one who is righteous because he alone has lived that perfect and sinless life fulfilling the law of God, completely fulfilling the will of God. And so now with that baseline, that theological baseline, we are now ready to look at the first word. So Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. For you shall have no other gods before me. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his glory and our joy. Amen. Jesus told us when he was questioned by a bunch of scribes, hypocrites. They were trying to trick him and they asked Jesus, they said, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And he gives them a bonus. He says, here's the second. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I know that that's not the the word or the commandment that we just read there in verse 3. What we read in the first commandment is, is the first. It's not the greatest. Jesus answered the question to them by quoting, actually, from the Old Testament. He wasn't making something up there. It'd still be the word, if it was, but he was, he was quoting back to the Old Testament. And he was quoting back to the Old Testament where there is this summary of all the commandments, of all the law of God. These ten words, in a sense, summed up together the entirety of the law. And Jesus said that the greatest commandment, the sum of all the law, is to love the Lord your God. Now I want us to just stop for a moment and I want us to just to ponder there. And if you're struggling on what to ponder on, let me help you. Think about how Jesus is implying correctly that you and me can and should, ready, love God. He is implying that you can and that you should love God. Does that not smack you in the forehead or stop you in the tracks like it, it does to me? That we or, or maybe this is just, just, just me who who struggles on a daily basis to truly love even my own loved ones with a pure heart and with pure motives, that we are now commanded by the Son of God in our weakness and in our absolute failure day after day after day to love the Lord God. And if that isn't humbling enough, So not only we should be doing that, so in almost a sense there's this heap of guilt that's brought upon us because you should be doing that. But Jesus is implying as well that we could or we can even love God. Because why else would he say it? That feeble, sinful, weak creatures as ourselves, Can love God? Is there anything of greater value? Is there anything of supreme worth or beauty or joy or even more glorious that we can love an ideal rather than the one and true living God? The greatest supreme being in all the universe. If you can think of another, if you can think of something that is more lovely or something more desirable or good in this life or in this world or even another God, then I would say you have already have broken the greatest commandment, meaning you have broken all the commandments. We say often in our Christian circles, in our church, And we say correctly that we desire to glorify God. That we want Him to receive all the glory. We sing, to God be the glory, soli Deo gloria. But often that can mean to us, that's just giving props to a distant or transcendent God or King of Kings. We forget that also what it means to glorify God is to love Him. That in our loving of him, in our adoration of him, and the desire of him, is glorifying to him. Our glorifying of God, brothers and sisters, isn't distant, but it's right here in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, from our bodies. Now back to the pondering. You and me, we get to love God. And this may be difficult not only to comprehend and to understand, but it's also difficult in practice because we are sinners. We're vile and we're deceitful in our own hearts. Even as redeemed creatures, we are still, there is such a wicked nature about, about us still. That still needs to be subdued by the Spirit. And we work in that sanctification and we trust in the Lord for His work, as was prayed this morning, from one degree of glory to the next. But we are still weak. And we still fall woefully short of the glory of God. Our love for God is so often low and short, and weak. And it ebbs and flows each day, with each situation. Even moments of the day, it can ebb and flow. But the implication of what Jesus has said is that we still can love God, and that we should love God. And how do we do that? Well, the answer is simply by God's grace. We do so by grace, and we do so by His grace through faith. Grace and faith compel us to love and glorify God because we are the ones who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. That He has saved us from our sins and that He has redeemed us from all of that wickedness that we may even still struggle with. It may still be there in some sense, in some ways that he has brought us near, that he has indwelled us within us his Holy Spirit who is always reminding us of our Abba Father and that we have been given new hearts and in these new hearts given to us by grace, we are now capable of loving and glorifying God in the ways and the means in which he has instructed us to do so. But what does that mean? How can we, not only in word, but also in deed, love God? Are we again capable of loving God in the ways that he deserves to be loved? I think these are humble questions Christians must ask themselves and wrestle with. Not only do I love God, but am I loving God in the way that he said I should love him? Now, I just let the cat out of the bag because the answer of the how is not based upon human ingenuity. It's not based upon creativity or talents or gifts or ability or self-piety or self-righteousness or even our sentimentality. But God has told us how we are to love him and worship him. And that is found in the objective truth of the word of God. Jesus makes it quite clear. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so in our understanding of loving Jesus and loving God with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength, the objective reality of love and glorifying God is what? In obedience. And the foundation of the greatest commandment that Jesus tells us is the greatest commandment finds its great and strong roots here in the beginning of the first word. You shall have No other gods before me. The first of importance is number one, not the greatest. And yet it is basic. The basic building block of all the other words to come. And at the most basic theological truth of of Christianity, step one, square one, the elementary starting place is set forth in this first word, of the existence and the preeminence of a sovereign God. And so what does this word, so you guys know I'm using these synonyms, word or commandment, I'm kind of using those together. What does this mean? And again, I believe in the most most basic and foundational level, this, this commandment, Establishing for us what it means to, to love God is establishing for us how the Lord God is perceived in the heavenly realms and how he is to pre- be perceived in the earthly realm. and the heavenly, the first commandment shows us that there is no such thing as atheism or pantheism or polytheism. To say there is no God, or to believe the universe is God, which is pantheism. Or there are many gods, which is polytheism, is what the Psalms say, that they are fools. And they're corrupt, and they're slaves to their own sinful nature, and their own sinful deeds and desires. The assumption in this first word, this first commandment, is clearly perceived. It's clearly worded without mistake that there is only one true God and there are no others. That's a pretty bold statement, especially when you read, again, the first word. It might sound a little confusing because in the plain reading of this commandment, it might seem to acknowledge the existence of other gods. If you shouldn't place another god before him. Doesn't that imply that there could be other gods? Well, historians have suggested that ancient Israel were first henotheists, meaning they believed in the existence of many gods, but they chose only to worship Yahweh. And historically, Israel, as we know, as we look in the scriptures, they struggled, to say the very least, with false gods and idolatry. Abraham, the father of Israel, was called out of an idolatrous family and culture. When working for for Laban, Jacob encountered the, the worship of many false gods. In fact, one of his wives, Rachel, even took the house gods with her when they left the house of Laban. In Egypt, while in Egypt, it was said that the Hebrews would would even adopt many of the Egyptian gods while they were in slavery for those hundreds of years. The ten plagues, again, helped to serve, to dismantle their dependence and their worship on those false and fake gods and then to look only and trust in the true and living God that was going to save them and ransom them and redeem them. We know that the golden calf is about to happen in Exodus 31 and 32, which is a gross example of disobedience of this commandment. At the end of Joshua's ministry, he, he gives the stirring message to choose and serve the Lord God only. But as Joshua would know, and so do we know through history and through the Bible, that Israel was, was and would continue in idolatry throughout their history, choosing to turn toward false gods, and their idolatry would even get worse and worse. All the prophets that were to come one way or another would confront the people over and over again, warning them of the judgment of God that would, that would come because of their idolatry. At any given time, they would worship almost any other god because the Lord. That's what it seemed like that if there was nothing else, there was no other God that they could turn to, then maybe they would worship God. That's how bad it got. They worshiped Baal and all of his forms and all of the deities that would offer this, these promises of material prosperity. That would offer them sexual experiences as being part of their worship and religion. The, the sacrifices that they would have to offer, even of their own children, to death. To, to the very cruel god named Molech. And some might even ask the question, what, what other gods could they have besides the Lord? The Lord has showed himself to be magnificent and mighty, and the answer is plenty of gods for them to turn to. You know, being in elite modernists, we may ask, how could they have fallen to such foolish things? How could they fall? How could they be such fools to 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 to, to be looking toward and to to fall uh, to, to to be duped into following such cruel and demanding and perversive gods? Isn't that the perceptive question of our day? Should we look around at our very own culture who claims and proudly boasts very loudly in just about every form of media and cultural element, there is no God. And yet, They are still worshiping at the feet, and they give into the demands of the same cruel gods. And therefore, they are living the same perverse and cruel worship of the creature rather than the creator. Even to the sacrificing of their own children, they give, and they give, and they give. Oh, church, our world, as non-religious as it claims to be, is just as religious and pagan as it ever was. Secularism is a religion in its most wicked of forms because it dupes you into believing that there is no deity when absolutely they are worshiping a deity wholeheartedly, the spirit of the age, the self. It's called something else, and they give it different names, but the roots and the end is still the same. So are there other gods? Are there truly other gods? Is this third commandment implying then that there are other gods? And the scripture answers that question for us, and that is Isaiah 45, 21, says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. I think that's, again, pretty clear. There is no other God besides me. There is none Besides me. Let's go to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. The Apostle Paul addressing the worship of idols in a, in a church that exists in a culture that is full of religious idols. And here's what he says. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. And so, biblically, answering this question, there is no other god. So then, what is this first commandment implying? Well, the answer is this, is that even though Baal doesn't exist, Baalism does. The worship of Baal does exist. And if these things do exist, then the heart of man will always be drawn into the worship of false gods. The way to understand this from the text is to consider the important phrase, before me. In that time, all other ancient gods existed within a pantheon of gods. And so the language in this commandment for Israel is to never construe the Lord as operating within a community of other gods. He works alone. Why? Because he is alone. His authority is absolute. Why? Because his divine power has not been distributed among any other gods. And if the Lord doesn't share his power or his authority, or his jurisdiction with any other gods, then they are are not gods in any sense of the word. Which is exactly what Isaiah was saying. Which is exactly what Paul was saying. They're worshiping idols, but they're really not. They're nothing. They're trinkets. They're pieces of trash. There's only one God. And the first commandment is not insisting on the existence of other gods, it's actually dismantling the notion or any thought of another god. Which then means by application to us, to Israel, and to us, do not worship them. Do not worship them, because they have no status. They have no power. They have no authority. Why? Because they are not real. And this command is for each and every one of us to consider. It's to consider individually about ourselves. It says, you shall. You shall is is not the second person plural, you all, but it's the second person singular. You. You shall not. Do you seek? Do you desire? Do you love? Do you worship anything other than the Lord God exclusively? And again, it's not made up in these particular trinkets shaped up as a, as a god or a serpent or something like that that ancient Israel had, but, but nonetheless... We understand that our human hearts are just as corrupt and deceitful above all else. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19. Their end is their destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. You better believe that we have a tendency to put other gods, as fake as they are, we put them up as rivals to the Lord. And I'll give you the three biggest examples. Categories. Sex, money, and stomach. The rulers of man, then, are the same rulers of man now. And they enslave us to pursue these things. They enslave us to pursue pleasures and possessions and position above anything else. and Like gods, whatever is in these categories that seek to enslave us, like like gods, they enslave us in such a way that they make us believe the promises that if you serve me, I will give you this. I will give you that. So bow. Give. Sacrifice. Worship. And even good things become our gods. Good things, and even fun things. Again, pleasures, possessions, position, money. Even good things, such as sports. What an idol that is to our culture. And even to us at points in time. Our very own jobs. What an idol. What a God that can become to us to serve. Or clubs, or even our families, or even our very own children. The list is is just absolutely endless. And, And every one of those examples, they make absolutely terrible gods. They will never... Ever satisfy you or fulfill the promises that they say that they will fulfill or whatever your heart is telling you will fulfill. They will never fulfill it. And so then what is the answer then to this problem that even to us as Christians that we have in this divided hearts? I love this answer from A.W. Pink. He says this, he says, conduct yourself in the realization that you are ever in the presence of God, that his eye is continually Upon you and is searching. And we are so apt to, to rest and content and be content if, that, uh, if we can but approve ourselves but before men and maintain a fair show of godliness outwardly, but Jehovah searches our innermost being and we cannot conceal from him any secret lust or hidden idol. living before the presence of God. The idols that you think are secret, they are not. They are not secret. And so we are to conduct ourselves in the presence of God. That he knows the very innermost parts, the innermost parts of our very being because... Because in truth, and in reality, is that there is no other God before him. And we've seen the meaning of this command. And the application for us is to have nothing before the Lord. Nothing before him. So now I want us to look at the positive side, a positive side of this command. And that is a good delight and a good duty that we have as the church And in this command that we are to not have any other gods before them. The implication of this, the, the positive side of this is that we have such a great joy to worship and serve and love the Lord our God. Amen. The reason why we worship the Lord is is not only because there is no other God before him. But with that, we worship him in love. Again, the the greatest commandment that Jesus told us was to love. To love the Lord our God. Which again, the quote from the Old Testament. And one in particular place he quotes it from is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. But before before Moses says the the summary of the law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and all that, Moses states theologically what is true about God. And that theology is what drives love. He says this in Deuteronomy 6.4. He says, hear, hear, ears, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. There's this call, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Here's the the call to, to remember, just like what we've been reading from Exodus 20, 1 and 2, is this, remember who I am. Remember what I have done to save you and to redeem you. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh, your God, is right there. And then we have this massive theological statement right after that. The Lord, the Yahweh, Yahweh is one. The oneness of God. Meaning he is one in unity. But also he is one, he is the only one. No other God can be identified with him. And there he is. The only one who has the right to demand you to love him, is because he is the one and only true and living God. And that's why verse 5, of Deuteronomy 6, 5, love the Lord your God. The theology of the oneness of God drives our love for God. Not only does the Lord have the right to demand the worship of his creation because he is God, but brothers and sisters, we worship or love him, not just out of the duty of being creatures, but we worship out of delight and joy, and we love him because he is the only true and living God, and this true and living God has come, and he has saved us. Hallelujah. As we sang this morning, for the magnificent, marvelous, matchless love of God was manifested to us in the presence of his Son, whom he sent to be a ransom for us. And by his son, through the sacrifice of his son, the Passover lamb, he has saved us. He brought us out of our slavery to the wicked, demanding, false gods that we willingly subjected ourselves to. And it's because of his love that we are gathered here this morning, not just out of duty, but out of delight. The delight of love, the love for the God who only is, the one and only. The church gathers as Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 say Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in splendor and holiness. That's what we do in our singing. It's what we do in our prayers. It's what we do when when we sit humbly under the ministry of the word of God over our hearts. We are now, as you're listening to the word of God being preached, we pray now that our hearts are ascribing to the Lord. We are ascribing to the Lord our love and our joy for Him because we need Him. We need His presence. We need His power. We need His work in, his, in, our, in, our, in our lives. And so we worship Him when we love Him because He is the one true God. And He has saved us. Providence has served us well this morning. In the reading of our confession this morning, Abby, would you put it back up? In the reading of the 1689 Confession of Faith of God, now put the other one up, the one we read today. We'll do that one in a second. The light of nature that shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is just and good and does good to all, and is therefore to be feared Loved, praised, and called upon, trusted, and served with all the heart, and all the soul, and with all the might. The providence of God brought us to the point, we read this this morning, in light of our text, that tells us that there is no other God besides him. And the positive end of that is that as we as his people, we as this God that there is no other, he's sovereign over, he's good to all. Then therefore as his people we are to fear him and love him and praise him and call upon him and trust in him. And serve him with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. And as it goes on to say, in the acceptable ways that he has told us that we are to do so. Another confession that it's helpful helpful—that is from chapter 2. He says, God having life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself all sufficient. Not standing in need of any of his creature with he hath made. Meaning, he doesn't need your love. He's not lacking your love. He's not lacking your worship or, or any of those things. He is in himself all sufficient. Nor deriving any glory from them. But only manifesting his own glory into, unto, and upon them, he is alone the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. And he hath most sovereign dominion over his creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleases. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain, he is the most holy in all of his counsels, in all of his works, in all of his commands. To him is due from angels and men, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience as creatures they owe unto the creator and whatever he is further pleased to require of them. So how then do we love and how then do we worship the one and true and only God? Well, let me give you four suggestions. First, diligently seek for a lifelong, fuller, knowledge of him in the only place he has revealed himself in his word yes i know he has revealed himself in creation now you're going to correct me on that But where he has revealed himself for us to know him in the fullest of of knowledge, we, we understand that it comes from his word. You cannot worship an unknown God. And if you try to, you will end up worshiping something else, if not everything else. Ask liberal churches that are not churches. They have forgone God's word, and they worship everything else but God. Let it not be said of you. Let it not be said of me. But know God fuller. And commit yourself to a lifelong commitment of knowing him from his word. Commit yourself to be a student of his word. To not just be full of knowledge. Who cares about knowledge? Commit yourselves to the knowledge of God. And that knowledge that leads to love and worship, if it's not leading to love and worship, you're just a Pharisee. You're a hypocrite. You're the scribe that's asking Jesus, "What's the greatest commandment, Jesus. You're just one of them. You just know a bunch of junk, but you don't know that it's supposed to lead you to love God. And simultaneously, as Jesus says, the second greatest commandment, to love one another if it's not manifesting itself in those two ways, you are not truly allowing the fullness of the knowledge of God to dwell within you and really transform you. You're just becoming arrogant and ignorant. Repent of it. Second, yearn and desire for the Lord and the joy that only is found in him. I know that sounds cliché. But what we desire, what we go after, what captivates our hearts and our minds the most, reveals a lot about us. If you're not pressing in, if you're not leaning into him by faith, then you'll be missing out on the whole point of this command to love. We can be very heady and less feely around here. And yet, the love for God should stir the very the deepest emotions and feelings within us. I mean, as David said in Psalm 42, verse 1, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. That's a lot of feely. A lot of need, a lot of desire for God. Third, fear the Lord with an awe of his glorious majesty, his supreme authority and holiness, so that you will love him in obedience to his word. Again, as Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Keeping a right, God-centered, Christ-exalting theology guards us from the sin of idolatry. And fourth, worship the Lord according to his word. Put what he has told us that is pleasing to him in practice. How and what we pray matters. What we sing and how we sing matters. How we gather matters. And so what will it mean in practice then for you? As you, if you, Lord willing, you implementing those four things within, within your life, what will it mean then in practice for you? That you implement those four things to cultivate that love and worship for the one and only true God. It means this. It means that all the thousands of things every day that are pressing upon you all the little things that take your time, all the unexpected things that happen, that slow you down or whatnot, all the demands of your attention each and every day, all the schedules that you have to make. If you've been working on those four things and praying and depending upon the Lord and cultivating love and worship of Him, then you will look and approach all of those thousand things as places to lovingly serve the Lord God. To do all things unto the Lord and to do your best for his glory and for his namesake. That that perspective changes our hearts. And with our hearts, it changes our attitudes. Taking the hard the difficult, the drudgery of often of life, and in making it about the divine. When it comes down to it, the first word, you shall have no other gods before me, brothers and sisters, Is not just this strict command of, of duty, but it's a command of delight. It's a command of worship. It's a command of love. And so is, is there anything in your heart and in your life that you have added importance or necessity to the Lord? Have you added to, created in your life this pantheon of importance? And, and in a sense, God is maybe there and then existing around him in these other things. Have you put anything before him or next to him? And if you have, hear the good news that the good news is not this is where you have to exist the rest of your life and your sin and your nature. But the good news is the character and love of God. And in the character and love of God, God is forgiving. And he forgives us of our sin. In fact, this, that's the very point of the gospel. It's the very point of why Christ came, was to forgive us of our sin. And if the Spirit of God has shown to you where you have maybe failing in this area, where maybe you have failed to love the Lord, sing, you know, single-minded, the worship of God, or, or, or given over to something else of more importance than Him, then confess your sin to the Lord. Ask for His forgiveness. And help pursue those four things we identified earlier, to cultivate a love and worship for the Lord as the one and true and only living God. I pray that we may do this. We may do this together. And all of God's people say,